3: Welcome everybody to another episode of After Work Drinks With. This week we are speaking to Chloe Swarbrick. Izzy, please tell us who Chloe Swarbrick is.
4: Okay, so when I went back to New Zealand in March, I arrived and I was like, who is this girl that everybody is talking about? I'm seeing her being regrammed everywhere. All my friends are mentioning her. So she's kind of basically in a sense, the Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez of New Zealand because everyone loves her and she's super down to earth and she tells it like it is. She's a millennial, she's 26, um, and she talks like us, she dresses like us, and despite working in, like, the most hectic environment filled with old men she is still herself and she's really funny and she gets shit done as well
3: so with so much talk about politics in the usa right now we feel as if we're all a little bit disillusioned with the political process so we really wanted to talk to someone who we knew would speak very honestly and openly about why as chloe herself has said politics is fucked but why we have to keep trying and engaging with it anyway So, Chloe was elected when she was only 23, making
4: me feel really old, and her the youngest elected MP in the country in over 40 years. Everyone, kind of, everyone at my age anyway, knows who Chloe is in New Zealand, but if you're outside of New Zealand, you might know her from her OK Boomer moment in Parliament, where she shut down a Conservative MP twice her age who was heckling her during a speech about climate change. And that moment was covered globally and went viral in the CNN, the
3: BBC, the Washington Post, everywhere. She's a legend. So before she got into politics, Chloe was a law student, a business owner, a journalist, a radio host. When she was only 22 in 2016, she ran to be the mayor of Auckland just casually. And despite a four-month campaign running as an independent, she came third in a pool of 19, which is quite wild now that she's an mp chloe was behind the first ever greens party bill that passed unanimously through parliament which is massive and she is leading the charge in new zealand right now on drug reform promoting the legalized cannabis movement which will be decided by a referendum in october
4: chloe is fucking amazing she's so bloody intelligent this is one of our favorite episodes to date and um in it we speak all about why millennial voters are disengaged with politics the double-edged sword of speaking about mental health as a politician, why it's worth losing electability to stand up for what you believe in, how drug laws tend to impact the most vulnerable people, and how toxic the political environment can
3: be. Chloe is an open book. She's such a bloody amazing person, and we think she's just going to keep getting more and more and more famous. So listen now so you're across her early. And if you liked this conversation, share on Instagram and do not forget to rate, review and subscribe. And Izzy, if you're a New Zealand voter, what do you need to do on October 17th? You need to vote. So voting opens on
4: October 3rd in New Zealand and goes until October 17th, which is election day. You can vote from overseas from the 30th of September. So just get online, ensure all your details are correct, update your electorate and vote yes on legalizing cannabis, which you will find out more about in this conversation. See you Wednesday.
2: How are you? Hi. Good, how are you? oh great i just um i was just scrolling through my um, notifications on instagram and there's one person like going off at me for apparently spelling my name incorrectly um because i have my oh. out over my o instead of my e which is from being a kid and not knowing how to spell my name um but yeah it's not supposed to be on my o but i decided when i was like growing up that if rappers could spell their name incorrectly then so could i so anyway how are you man <laughs> this shit you
3: deal with as a politician this just crazy
2: i'm like why
3: would anyone <laughs> weigh in on that to you.
2: I oh, just, I don't know. It's just like kind of that thing, eh, where for some reason every single aspect of your life is available for public consumption. And I mean, you you kind of, to a certain extent, obviously need folks to have an investment in who you are because it opens the doors to having these yarns about you know whatever matters. But it's just utterly wild uh, the stuff that people think that they are entitled to about your life. And again, by no means like having a pop at them, but it's just this kind of funny thing realizing that you've spent a lot of time having these conversations about stuff that feels so lacking in substance um, where people are like hitting you up about i don't know the way that you spell your name for example <laughs> <laughs> yeah like we've got we've got bigger fish to fry oh yeah i mean like climate change or like intergenerational
4: <laughs> <Yes>. inequality or <laughs> yeah. Um, I am from New Zealand, so it's so nice to have a New Zealand accent on the podcast. It's always filled with fucking
3: Australians. (laughs) And I'm an Australian. Hi. Oh, yeah. Whereabouts in Australia are you from? Um, So I'm from from Perth. I'm in Perth at the moment, but I was in Sydney for like the last 10 years. Oh,
2: true. Yeah. Yeah. My um, partner, Nadine, is um, from uh, Perth. Uh, We actually met in Perth. But I... She's by way in the UK so now she's in New Zealand but yeah life is wild.
4: Yeah life is wild we both live in London and I'm in LA she's in Perth. I've just left New Zealand it's a whole thing. Oh totally and we're
2: also on lockdown. did you hear that there's a meteor like heading towards the planet too so it's just like 2020.
3: No but I just watched melancholia so this feels quite suspect. <laughs> on brand i wouldn't i wouldn't even be surprised anymore that's the sad thing about this year i'm like i am medial
4: yeah i know and and, and how the government announced that there were aliens when um during the pandemic and we were just like
3: no one gives a
4: shit (laughs) they're like and by the way there are aliens
3: anyway um yeah
4: yeah i wouldn't be surprised wouldn't be surprised so you were sworn in as the youngest lawmaker in new zealand since 1975 when you were 23 years old what inspired you to make the jump into politics because most people our age are pretty cynical about politicians.
2: It's funny because I get um, hit up by a lot of people nowadays when I, whenever I'm talking about politics or the state of the institutions or whatever, and they're like, wow, you're cynical. And I'm like, you should have seen me four years ago. Um, it was way worse. <laughs> I've become weirdly um, far more optimistic in how things can change. And particularly um, in New Zealand, like we have a population the size of Melbourne. Um, and we've got two degrees of separation. And when folks come together and kind of demand stuff happens, it happens really quickly. And there's probably no uh, better example than the kind of debate that I've been involved in around um, cannabis reform for the past kind of two and a half years, where our like literacy uh, on the issue uh, and on the criminal justice system and on public health approaches and stuff was just so out the gate cooked, like very much in the war on drugs kind of frame um, about four years ago. Now it's in this place of we're discussing the nuances and complexities and better health approaches. So I think when people are actively engaged in politics and their democracy, um, stuff does work. But, like, how I got involved in it, um, I was just pissed off. I was just like, um, this stuff is really inaccessible. Um, I, uh, like, studied philosophy and law, never with the intention of being a lawyer, but funnily enough, going to law school with a bunch of kids who were like, I'm going to be the next justice. And I'm like, but why? Why do, you, why do you want that role? What's kind of the point beyond occupying this space of, like, platform and privilege? So um, I guess that's probably why I aligned with um, the Greens as because you know you don't join a so-called small or third party because uh, you intend to like climb the ranks or like go up the hierarchy but it's because you'll fight your corner tooth and nail for the stuff that you believe in so yeah that's i just i just fell into it because i was real real grumpy at the way that things were and i felt like we needed a fight <laughs>
3: that's amazing and you so what what was your experience like, in adjusting to life as a politician, you said recently politics is fucked, which was, should be on a bumper sticker. <laughs> like, what What? What was it like versus your expectations when you started working there?
2: Yeah, it's been real funny because um, off the back of that, so like that is a statement that comes from um, this... Uh, little doco that was shot by um, some amazing people for this um, outfit called Loading Docs, which kind of produces New Zealand stories uh, every year that are about eight minutes or so long. And it's really interesting because that comes like halfway through the doco when I'm like have walked through all of the kind of cooked things about politics and then i'm like surprise (laughs) here we are (laughs) of course it's cooked um but the um, funniest thing was that i think a lot of particularly mainstream media picked up on that in a way that was really lacking in self-reflection like they were just like Millennials say swear word, therefore, she is not um, supposed to be in a position of power because you're supposed to hold yourself to a certain level of decorum or whatever. Um, and for me, uh, I think that I was really lucky to come into Parliament um, and to politics with eyes wide open, like aware that um, there was a lot that needed to change and that the institution was messed up uh, and that I would be kind of fighting my corner from day dot. So. Uh, it was quite a weird experience first coming in because um, there's actually, this is one of the things that they cut out of that docker cause they just had so much footage. Uh, but I, when I first came in um was like, do I need to wear suits all the time now? I was aware that, um, you know, uh, particularly being the young one, that I would be pigeonholed and stereotyped based on that. So I was like, okay, I will cut off all of the other things that they can have a go at me about. So like all of the band t-shirts and stuff that I normally wear, I was like, okay, those are going in the bottom drawer for right now. I'm just going to wear a suit every day because that way they can't attack me based on that. And I will just focus on building um, my kind of cachet of experience in the role and showing that I can get shit done. And I uh, focused on that, but I found that I got like low key a bit miserable. Um, and, and, I guess cutting off my edges um, and not being as much of, as fulsomely um, kind of myself in the role, Um, because I don't know, um, I kind of have a tiny bit of a background in um, fashion and stuff. And it's always been an important thing for me in terms of self-expression. But also like I have so much merch from my mates' bands and things that it's just another part of being embedded in culture um, and whatever else. So for me, um, yeah, as soon as I realized that i trying to conform, if only a little bit aesthetically, was making me miserable, I was just like, okay, cool, um, I'm going the full hog and being myself in this. And
4: you have also talked about, in the past, about how politicians are often more concerned with their own electability than they are about doing the actual job they've been hired to do. Um, why do you think that is and, I don't know, how, do
2: we, how would we fix that? I think we incentivize the wrong things. Eh? Like I think mm. um, in uh, politics, particularly adversarial politics, uh, the fo- and particularly in like the soundbite media environment, the focus is on who can get the cut through, who can say the high-level rhetoric, who gets the soundbites, who um, gets the headlines, and it's about political point scoring. So. Uh, it's actually quite divergent. Like if you think about um, what practically makes sense to do, if you talk to like experts and researchers and scientists and community leaders and people who've like dedicated their lives to solving these problems uh, and how complicated and nuanced uh, those discussions have to be, versus uh the soundbite media environment so many politicians exist in to engage in that complexity and nuance means giving up the goat on like having um this soundbite friendly uh easy way of communicating and rocking the boat requires explanation so to do so requires sticking your neck out taking a risk and in turn, perhaps having some people be mad at you, <laughs> and you know you become polarizing as a result. And in turn, um, you know you, you lose some of that potential electability. And I think perhaps the best way to. Um, kind of think about it is like obviously very broad brushstroke um but in a binary it's like the seesaw where on the one side of things you kind of choose uh your career and on the other side of things you choose change so the more that you prioritize one of the over the other the more that you lose some of the other so um you know, particularly on like, again, um, the controversial issue of drug law reform. So many politicians I know privately hold the position that we need to change on that, but they're not willing to go out publicly and say that because they risk annoying uh, their leadership or losing their opportunity to progress in their electorate because they don't want to have what may be a like five minute conversation as opposed to a five second interaction with, you know, people in their community. So it's just kind of that challenge, right, of um, I think a lot of politicians end up, even though they might justify to themselves that they come in with these really noble reasons, like make the world a better place, you end up arguably really perversely self-centering when you justify incrementalism based on the fact that you have to be there. Um, So as far as I'm Mm -hmm. concerned, it's like the catalytic point always has to be the change and you need to build a community as opposed to build a candidate. And that's all about why, like, I think particularly on the left of politics, I've become really focused on how you develop, like, a, a way of continuing to upskill and bring through people. Because the co like the values, the principles, um, can't live or die on one person. Otherwise you don't have a movement, you've got a moment.
4: The funny thing is, is you were literally accused of kind of the complete opposite of that by another woman who's running for the same seat as you saying kind of likening you to having that celebrity status rather than, um, I don't know, doing your job. Um, and I know. And with that, you likened that to the misogyny that the prime minister Jacinda Ardern gets daily. Um, and it's like in a job where you're pitted against other candidates, do you kind of struggle with the need that you need to fight each other all the time just to keep
2: your job? Yeah, I think, um, so I, that uh, whole celebrity jab was real funny because, firstly, I'm like, please, please come at me and let me talk about my track record, because I'd love to do that. <laughs> um, but also, uh, it's it's such a double-edged sword, eh? Because I um, was originally uh, attacked for being a nobody with no life experience. Like, I literally came into politics from nothing i was like this weirdo from like independent media and small businesses in the 2016 local body election who everybody dismissed for having no life experience and then i like have very intentionally been like i can do this stuff let me show you let us build a community let us uh develop these solutions let us implement law change like I literally have the first ever Green Party members bill that passed uh, unanimously through every single stage, which is a historical thing. But nobody talks about that stuff. People only want to talk about cannabis because it's sexy or controversial. Um, But then you've also got like the um, hilarity of me being whittled down on the basis of like, the whole um okay boomer thing which was just this really like minute moment in parliament where i'm being heckled about my age and then all of a sudden i say like a TikTok thing that my little brother taught me uh, just because it was in my head and then it becomes like fox news is like new zealand lawmaker uh, starts intergenerational warfare and i'm like what about all of the things where millennials have like ruined toast and like um, the housing market and everything else, like the inability to have the introspection about um, maybe it's all G for things to go in the other direction every once in a while. And that's the point of comedy. Um, But yeah, it's, I don't know. Everything's just um, this weird thing where I think when you are somebody who doesn't look or sound like, the, the person who you expect um, to occupy that space, right? And nowhere is it probably more obvious than, and I apologize for keep referring to New Zealand politics, so I'll try and give you the kind of background and context for it. But we had, um, we've had we had a whole lot of changes with the leader of opposition recently. And um, the second to last one was this dude who actually was the guy who was heckling me about my age, who I heckled back during my speech on climate change. Uh, and he uh, just was elevated to this position of leadership, and he was asked in, in an interview um, by John Campbell, who's one of the um, kind of foremost um, journos in the country. You know, why you? Why are you the dude at the front? And and I was just like, holy any woman I know, any marginalized person has had to justify why they have applied for anything ever. And you've just got these dudes who are literally like, oh yeah, I'll do it. I'm entitled to it. Um, and I'm like, you know, just that um, kind of headspace that you've got to be in to put yourself forward into these roles. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's so fascinating. It's such a clash of like culture and ambition and whatever else. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, I remember that was a thing with um, Ted Kennedy. I read a book on the Kennedys recently and he he was going up for president and they're like, why do you want to be president? Oh, thank you. It's my mom. <laughs> oh, mum, Coral. <laughs> thank you, mum. Coral yeah, cameo. cameo from Coral. Um, but he was asked why he wanted to be president and he literally just like stuttered and didn't answer for 30 seconds because he was just like, well, just because I can. Like, I don't know. <laughs> because it's yeah. my
2: my birthright yeah it's I'm allowed yeah. yeah
3: um we wanted to ask um not about the okay boomer thing but a- about how that's very much attached to your name um do do you think that the intergenerational conflict is a very real thing in politics and do you think that people dismiss or undervalue ideas of yours because they think you're very wide-eyed and eager and that you just don't get the world yet
2: yeah i think there's um a lot to unpack in that. i think um the intergenerational inequity stuff uh, has been a real elephant in the room for at least a decade now um and it's been really interesting how it's primarily been um focused on punching down so um i'm aware that in um, oz but also definitely here i'm not so um, cognizant of how it's played out in the uk but Uh, There has been a real mainstream narrative of like young people can't afford to buy homes because uh, They're all just focused on these luxuries of flat whites and avocados or whatever And it's like this laughable meme, but it's also really indicative of how uh, pervasive this notion of deserving is and the um, kind of trope that young people these days are not inclined to work hard or whatever. And I kind of have tried to boil that down and explain it to um, family members of mine who tend to be you know, um, somewhat more conservative. Uh, And it's that, you know, hard work, no one is dismissing your hard work if you've ended up with assets or whatever else. Uh, But also you need to really recognize that outcomes is hard work plus environment that's conducive to recognizing and rewarding that hard work equals outcomes. So right now there are a whole bunch of people who are working really hard, who don't have circumstances that are conducive to recognizing or rewarding that hard work, so they don't have the equivalent outcomes. So like I was asking my Nana um, a few weekends ago at her birthday before Auckland um, went back into alert level 3 lockdown because uh, we had a little community outbreak of Corona. Uh, but a big one asking,
4: according to Trump.
2: Well yeah, a, a really massive one of like our yeah. peak is 112 <laughs> cases <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> compared to the 40,000 um, in, <laughs> in America that day rather. So um, uh, yeah, their man data. So um i was asking her about um you know how she came to uh, buy her first property and she was like oh you know i worked really hard and i was like yeah but how did you afford the deposit and she was like i sold my car and i was like you sold your car <laughs> like can you can you just please reflect on that? how you got the like you sold your car to it to, to even begin to fathom that that is how someone might get a house or a deposit for a house nowadays is just beyond like imagining so um having her kind of walk through the the, that false equivalence that's being drawn was actually really conducive to opening her mind to kind of trying to understand that Um, but i think uh on the flip side of things in terms of like my opinions and stuff uh being devalued or um my contributions being kind of taken with a grain of salt because i'm like the young one or whatever there definitely is an element of that but i think there's an element of that Um, whenever you don't look or sound like the person who's supposed to be in charge. Um, So, you know, we don't just see it applied to myself. Like, I see it on a whole nother level with um, my colleagues in my Green Caucus, um, Marama Davidson, who's our co-leader, who's a Maori woman, um, and Golruz Garaman, who is the first refugee MP um, in this country. And it's just wild when you think about how... Any other MP can make a mistake on data or numbers and then correct it, and that's all G. But whenever these two make a mistake, they are there is like headlines, like literally the six o'clock news will report on it, almost to shame them. And they are held out as representing all of Māoridom or all refugees ever. And again, it's just this... Weird thing that I don't think the media reflects on when they go there's this one person who is slightly different because of this characteristic that they hold therefore they need to be held to a higher standard than everybody else. And it's just like, again, I don't, I don't understand the, the logic behind that beyond continuing to gatekeep uh, because the same approaches are not applied to everybody.
4: So you have ended up quite involved in the legalised cannabis movement, um, which is not something you'd actually been particularly interested in until like rather recently. Um, And in New Zealand, there's a referendum to legalize cannabis this year. Can you just talk a little bit about why you think it should be legalised?
2: Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess a bit of background as well. Um, I never was really all too into, like it wasn't a driving passion for me, kind of the drug war, I guess. Um, So... I guess first things first. I have um, had personal experiences with stuff. Like I had a flatmate from regional New Zealand who moved into Auckland, which is our largest city. Um, obviously, flatted with us um, for sake of studying, and the dude had quite severe mental health issues. Um, so started using cannabis, which you know, um, even though it's an illegal substance, um, New Zealand actually has the eighth highest um, usage rates per capita in the world. Um, so we use. (laughs) at a way higher rate than most people. Um, But 80% of New Zealanders will use cannabis by the age of 21. It's uh, based on Ministry of Health data from, unfortunately, the most recent is 2014, 2015. Uh, 11% of the population will use uh, on a frequent basis. So that's between 350,000 to 500,000 New Zealanders uh, using regularly, interacting with the black market to get it. So it's very common, despite the fact that we uphold all this mythology around um, kind of criminal prohibition. So anyway, this um, flatmate um, was using weed, uh, and you know that's kind of by the by, that's I think most people, um, not, not only of like our generation, but Older generations probably have experience with mates doing that kind of stuff. And he kind of kept self-isolating and, like, withdrawing further and further and, you know, wouldn't necessarily reach out for help if he needed it, especially because, you know, who is going to come forward to the authorities and go, hey, I'm doing something illegal, help me. Um, and he then kind of graduated to some uh, And then he ended up going home for the holidays and uh, we got a call from his parents and he'd taken his life. So I had never really connected the dots on just how rough um, and how uh, that situation was one that was created not solely by the drugs, uh, but primarily by virtue of our legal and our social and our criminal responses to somebody who uses those drugs. Like, had he felt comfortable um, coming out of the box um, that he'd kind of withdrawn himself into to access help, but also if there was a duty of care on the dealers that he was interacting with, as there is in a legal market on, for example, al- alcohol, there would have been an opportunity to intervene in problematic usage. There wasn't in this circumstance. So, like, uh, you know, that kind of happened and it was really devastating, but I didn't really reflect on that Um, Again, until I was at uni um, in advanced crim and actually uh, one of the uh, forefront kind of proponents of uh, cannabis legalization and control in the country now is Kylie Quince, uh, who was my law lecturer. Uh, And I remember going through, looking at the Misuse of Drugs Act 1975, which is kind of like the core component law for uh, how people are penalized and prosecuted um, for using substances, but obviously disproportionately only, really, if you're in a marginalized community. Uh, And I remember being taught about the fact that, um, it's one of the only pieces of law in this country that reverses the burden of proof. Um, which would be unconstitutional in other countries but because New Zealand doesn't have a Supreme codified constitution it's totally like legit. So basically you have to prove that you're not supplying if you have over a certain amount of a substance which is mega problematic because it yeah contravenes my t-
4: uncle went to jail for that I just remembered. Yeah <laughs> yeah I'm really and sorry. He wasn't
2: <laughs> He wasn't selling it. <laughs> yeah, but but that's the thing, right? The um that reverse burden of proof ends up with really cooked scenarios. And I also, as part of that paper, had to go to the high court and watch someone be sentenced. And I'd read all of these cases, um, and obviously in law school. Uh, and then I went and watched um, this white kid who was like twenty three years old. He'd imported half a million dollars worth of Class B substances, but he had a real fancy lawyer. Uh, And he, so he had a QC, his family were there dressed real nice. Um, His lawyer told the story about how he'd just enrolled in trades training and how, um, you know, he had good character and how he would just got engaged. And I'm not sure how much you know about the criminal justice system, but there is, um, firstly, you get found guilty or not guilty of a crime but after that there's a process called sentencing and in sentencing judges get to take into account what are called aggravating and mitigating factors and aggravating factors are things like you know, just how much you meant it, um, whether there was violence involved, whatever else, um, kind of whether you had plotted and planned it through. But mitigating factors are effectively factors of privilege. So they're things like whether you have a, you know, safe family home to go back to, whether you have access to uh, resources that will keep you afloat if you aren't put into the criminal justice system. And I watched this kid who had import, like 23 you know it was older than me at the time uh this guy who had imported half a million dollars worth of class b substances get home detention in quite a cushy circumstance don't get me wrong i don't think that anybody should necessarily be going to prison for those kinds of things but then you apply that to 1300 young maori our indigenous population men being prosecuted and criminalized for cannabis uh, low level offenses in new zealand every year And just that blew my mind at that point in time. But again, it wasn't like this kind of catalytic point to let me um, now go and like advocate mega for this, because there was a lot of other stuff going on in life. So it just kind of sat in the back of my mind until um, when I was elected, uh, Julianne Genter, who's another Green Party MP, uh, in the last parliament, she had what's called a members bill drawn out for medicinal cannabis um, to legalize and create a framework around that. Uh, And she became a minister, so you can't progress in cannabis bill as a minister. So she was kind of looking around the corpus table, and I was like, yeah, cool, I'll take it on. Uh, And that kind of reopened the Pandora's box for me, because I began looking into why cannabis was first made illegal, who's been punished and prosecuted for cannabis. And then as we progressed, um, and we helped to negotiate to form the government, um, we created a confidence and supply agreement um, to install Jacinda as Prime Minister um, but that confidence and supply agreement includes one line about treating drugs as a health issue including having a referendum on legalization of cannabis and I guess the core of it is recognizing that cannabis, like any substance, alcohol, tobacco, whatever, can cause harm, especially if used to excess and use whilst young. But right now, our approach to prohibition is causing disproportionate harm. It's not decreasing it. It's like increasing it. So we need a different approach. And that approach needs to be built on public health. So it's been a long and checkered journey. uh, And I've been fighting against um, folks who are upholding prohibition, primarily this outfit called Family First, um, who also... fought against my right to be married to the woman that I love, Uh, the people who want to control my uterus um, and, you know, not give us access to safe legal abortions. Uh, They also fought in um, the early 2000s against the anti-smacking bill so that parents uh, could continue to hit their kids to the point of incomprehension. Uh, So I'm hoping that with that track record that we beat them. (laughs) Me too. God. (laughs) Um,
3: So you've talked about your mental health before. um, And we wanted to talk to you about that because just firstly, why you wanted to speak about it openly. And secondly, you have a job that's very tied up in criticism and in an expectation to have thick skin, whatever that means. So how do those two things work together?
2: Yeah. So um, mental health um, was an interesting one because Uh, There was this journo called James Borrowdale who worked for Vice um, before Vice had to shut down here because money and everything else. Um, But he worked for Vice and he um, followed me a bit on the 2016 Mural campaign and um when you're out and about in someone's fault I'm just probably way too frank um with too many people so um I was just speaking to him about like he was just asking me questions and I was like oh la 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 here's my life um and he then hit me up after that and was like hey um can I tell the story of you know your your mental health um particularly because it gets quite heavy at the point of like suicidal ideation and you know drinking myself to points of um almost killing myself and all of these other really intense, heavy things. Uh, And I was like, um, I mean, I guess so, but only if you do the whole context. Like, I'm not going to let you whittle this down to a soundbite. It has to be, here is the whole package of why this became a thing. Uh, And I don't really know why I decided to do it beyond the fact that I just thought, um, it was better to always be up front and not to feel like I was hiding something and I had kind of the same response um, with you know I um, am like I'm bisexual I've dated boys and girls and I'm currently um, engaged I'm, I'm engaged to a woman. Congrats. And I kind of made, thank you, (laughs) I kind of made um, the uh, decision that if I was ever asked by a journal about my sexuality then I would just be like straight up like yeah. Um, But I'd never like kind of make it a thing preemptively. Um, And just kind of grappling with the differences between how important it is to hold yourself out as a representative so people can see themselves in politics, but then also feeling as though you're making it about yourself. Like, I didn't I didn't quite know how to grapple with um, two sides of that coin. So um, I also thought that putting that stuff um, out there um, kind of on the table meant that no one could ever attack me for it, too. Um, and it wasn't like I was hiding it. It then was just, it is what it is. Um, so yeah, I, I spoke about it and, um, just for those who who aren't aware, I, um, have clinical depression. Um, I medicated for it. Um, it's, it's quite intense (laughs) at times. Um, but I, you know, as I've got older in particular, have managed to, um, find ways to, uh, be totally upfront about that and to, um, find what my kind of triggers are for lack of a better word and then different ways to mitigate stuff in terms of, um surviving um in the political space uh, it was always really important to me uh, to be upfront about just how messed up what i encountered might be so it's been really funny because i get this kind of reception particularly from um talkback radio and those kind of conservative platforms where people are like oh you know if she can't handle the heat get out the kitchen and i'm like why the hell is the kitchen on fire like why are we accepting that this is the way things have to be. Um, And I had this um, talkback radio, um, you know, uh, shock jock ask me the other day, oh, you know, um, things have improved so much since the 80s when there was, like, sexual violence galore and everyone was drinking all the time. And I'm like, cool, like, right, We've we've progressed somewhat, but, like, do you want me to just, like, go home and, like, give up on progress? Like... Was it, were we supposed to be okay when women got suffrage, but we weren't allowed to stand for parliament? Like, great point on the fact that humanity progresses. Um, But my whole kind of argument is just, um, actually, we need to figure out how we do this stuff better, because not only does this um, kind of institutional approach of deep adversarialism make people so cold, um, and it kind of divorces them from reality, particularly the communities that you know you go in to represent, because you're like literally sat in this ivory tower of like plush leather seats and like plush carpet and wooden walls and all of these old dudes and like frames staring down at you, and all of this regal deference and whatever else. And for me, that's not the best system to design. I mean, it's not the system that you would design if you actually wanted to solve problems. It's a system designed to perpetuate the way things are and to keep power and wealth in the hands that already have it. So um, for me, kind of being honest about who I am in that space and continuing to hold that space to account um, has been, I hope, um, a useful way to have some people recognize uh, that it doesn't have to be that way. But also has been really important for me to go, um, I don't want to be here forever, so please, Woman will excellent shady, please stand up, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
4: and the thing is, is like, so I know, I actually know Jacinda from before she was Prime Minister, and I did an interview with her when she first was elected, and she was, you know, really open, like, more open probably with me than other journalists because we know each other and have a prior relationship but she was so chatty and we were talking about Clark and we were talking about when we went to explore together and she was a com- complete open book and then as soon as I asked about anxiety she kind of you know got a bit more the political face came on and it's because oh. she's obviously really aware of the way she's phrasing her answer because as it was used against you when you said you have depression people use it as yeah like a reason you shouldn't be Uh, able to be an MP when I would argue that it's the complete opposite because you actually have empathy and can understand a whole group of people like it's just beyond.
2: Yeah, I think um, like I totally understand why um, there is a a fear of being open as a politician because kind of um, actually as Grace was saying before, like the notion of um, the so-called thick skin. The thing about like growing such a thick skin or donning your armor though is that you lose empathy. Um, because you, if you aren't able to be open and vulnerable about who you are, then you don't necessarily, um, you're not able to see that in other people. So I remember one of the best pieces of advice that I actually got um, when I first got involved in politics. So I went and sat down with a bunch of people who I admired um, and just kind of hit them up and was like, hey, I'm new here. Can you please have a coffee with me? Um And Penny Hulse, who uh, was the former deputy mayor um, of Auckland Council, uh, sat down with me uh, and I was asking her about the fact, like, at that point in time, critique uh, and people having a go at me. Like, I I also really want to drive home that there is a massive difference between critique, which I'm totally open for, like, absolutely have a go about the fact that you think I need to be held accountable on whatever, that you think there's policies, like crap, whatever. But there's a massive difference between that and like going at someone on an ad hominem basis and just like coming out the gate with all of these baseless, awful, vitriolic things. Uh, and I was asking Penny about how to navigate that. And she goes, um, you know, don't grow so thick a skin that you can't hear people anymore. And it's just that you need to remain moored in reality to a certain extent because otherwise you do end up with this massive um, kind of untethered ego. Um, And ego, you know, I use in quite a value-neutral way um, in that you think that you uh, can only really get information on reality from a few certain sources, uh, which in turn means that you are more and more likely to be conservative in your way of thinking, whichever way of thinking that is. Uh, than to be open-minded to the stuff that people out there and around you are saying. But it's become, um, (laughs) sadly, um, way easier to deal with um, the kind of, you know, pile-ons and hatred and whatever else um, when it comes in waves. But to your point, um, I I think that uh, there is a a fear uh, and, I, and I see this in, in my colleagues as well that on both sides of the chamber who I came in with in 2017 and the new cohort of MPs uh, Who are not straight up about who they are don't want to, you know Crack the facade of the professional politician because they want to be in politics for like 20 years And if you put something on the record now That might be used against you in like three five six seven years, you know 20 years down the track absolutely so to crack that veneer is really damn risky.
3: Yeah. We wanted to ask as well, you had an amazing quote about resilience where you said, resilience isn't a commodity you buy off the shelf. And I think our generation are accused a lot of being unresilient. What what do you kind of make of that whole discussion?
2: Oh, no, I think it's a really um, valuable one, right? So like um, worth giving a little bit of context on this um, because... I have come to understand um, my own mental ill health in actually a far deeper way since having the privilege of this position because of uh, the need to apply uh, kind of solutions on a macro level. So looking into the academia and the research and how you, for example, fund all of these services in these different pockets all around the country, but also trying to look into the pipeline of mental ill health and why so many people are presenting right now um, with those issues. So um, we, in our first 100 days in government, I'm the mental health spokesperson for the Greens, um, we collaborated across government and created uh, a blueprint uh, or a terms of reference for the uh, mental health and addiction inquiry. And uh, interesting thing is that it's not actually the first mental health inquiry that we've had as a country. We've had two or three in the past. But what was different about this mental health inquiry is that firstly, it recognized that addiction is a form or a manifestation of mental ill health. But secondly, it didn't seek to kind of individualize or pathologize or place people within the biomedical model. And what I mean by that is like historically, particularly in a kind of very Western approach, we have gone, oh, somebody has an issue um, with their mental health, therefore they need pharmaceuticals, (laughs) Um, or they need X, Y, Z treatment as an individual. Uh, It hasn't been looking at the fact that human beings don't exist in a vacuum. They are impacted by their lives and their experiences and their circumstances. So uh, it's sought instead to look at um, what is perhaps best characterised um, as kind of a te ao Māori or tikanga Māori, more indigenous lens on it, uh, which is best modelled um, as Te Whare Tapa tha, uh, by Sir Mason Jury, who is a wonderful um, academic uh, who has contributed a whole lot to particularly Māori, um, indigenous wellbeing and different lenses and approaches to it uh, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, but basically recognising that, you know, you don't just have your physical health and your mental health isn't, only associated to your physical health there's your social well-being and kind of your cultural well-being as well and your environment so what it found um we put together this uh, kind of group of experts who spoke to other experts and other researchers looked at international models uh but they also traveled around the country and spoke to um family and Fano. Fano being the I realise I'm using a lot of Treo. Sorry, sorry. Um, Fano being family. Um, I got it. Treo <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> little Grace is
4: like, I'm not sure what's happening.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I'll try my best to translate when I say those things. Um. So uh, they uh, spoke to all these people who were uh, having experiences with the system but also had bad experiences or a lack of experience with the system. Uh, and basically, in a nutshell, what they found, um, the kind of, uh, core finding and this is interesting because it's actually really reflective of a whole lot of contemporary research on mental health and addiction But we just don't tend to characterize it or talk about it in this way But you can have a biological that being kind of hereditary inherited from your parents or your grandparents or whatever predisposition genetically to manifestation of mental ill health and kind of addiction issues but your environment, your circumstances, your life experiences can either aggravate or mitigate it. So it can kind of turn the dial up or turn the, t- turn the dial down. So um, it has been really interesting uh, to realize that uh, you know, different factors uh, in people's lives, particularly our trauma and isolation, are uh, the two major driving factors of particularly addiction issues and the greatest irony with that is that we currently take a criminal justice approach to addiction which further isolates and traumatizes people and we're like oh why isn't this working um but then you have things like poverty you have things like insecurity and a sense of hopelessness so back to why younger people in particular i think are more inclined to manifest mental ill health uh, is because we live lives of massive amounts of insecurity, sometimes hopelessness, and the transience that all of that is correlated to. If you operate in the gig economy, but also are a, like, have been a renter, you move around all the damn time, you don't have the opportunity to put down roots in a community and build a neighborhood. Who the hell knows their neighbors nowadays? And then you have as well, um, the fact that you move around job to job to job, you aren't necessarily able to make friends with your coworkers, which means that you don't build that kind of shared experience or capacity of what you're all going through all of these things contribute to a deep sense of individual responsibility for dealing with experiences that you think are unique to you. When you have an experience feeling as though, you know, you're really off kilter and you aren't able to express it with other people and realize it's your shared experience, then it's therefore a problem with you. It's your problem. Uh, And that kind of deep individualization has also manifest in what um, this wonderful, amazing young woman called Zoe Palmer from um, the top of the South Island um, in this country. She was advocating, she's 18 and she was just so damn eloquent. She was advocating for mental health services in Nelson, one of our cities, and was kind of talking about the fact that we commodify um, treatment for or uh, kind of wellness culture. So it's like the idea that you can continue with this deep, unsustainable way of living, like working 80 plus hours a week and hating your job and everything else, if only you get a massage and then you're sweet. Um, you know, that all of that is actually um, the the wrong way to look at it. And I think the same thing for um, the notion of resilience as it's currently held out. People are like, oh, you know, if you are really unhappy with the way things are, if you're experiencing mental ill health, then you just need to get some resilience you need know, to pull yourself up, up by your bootstraps all of those kind of tropes. But the thing is that actually, to adjust yourself by virtue of the so-called resilience to just how profoundly awful your circumstances is, uh, is again, uh, to continue perpetuating deeply unsustainable circumstances. So resilience is not about trying to go, I can keep my head down and keep doing this stuff, which totally sucks. Resilience is actually a community trait. So it's about um, building a kind of system, a team, a group of people uh, whereby you can take a step back when you need to and other people step up and vice versa. Uh, Because it is actually a really problematic notion that everybody can do everything all the time, which is why I push back around like these awful things of like super woman, um, you know, the, the woman who can have it all kind of stuff. It's actually really problematic that we expect woman to have to do it all for example. So yeah, hopefully that's some form of useful insight into that way of thinking about stuff.
4: Totally. You actually I just listened to Michelle Obama speaking to Barack Obama on her podcast and they were saying the exact same thing. So Oh great. I, I, I yeah. I... <laughs> <laughs> right, Scott got your back. Um so final question because we're aware we've taken up a lot of your precious time. Um, People say that they don't vote because, you know, they don't feel represented or they don't think their vote matters, or they actually just don't understand politics and think that they, you know, that's not what they're interested in, or it doesn't matter. Um, can you please explain exactly why everyone needs to get to the polls in New Zealand and wherever else there is an election this year?
2: Totally. Um so I mean, first things first, just kind of reflect. I I, I need to tell you that I have door knocked all across this country. And the notion that people who know what they're like, who vote, know what they're voting on or about is a lie, okay? There is not a monopoly on ignorance. <laughs> there is a whole lot of people right now who are of all demographics who have no idea what they're voting on, but vote primarily actually based on identity, which is funnily enough one of the um, greatest ironies of the people who decry identity politics are oftentimes, in my experience, the most likely to engage in it because there's not usually rationale behind why they're Yeah, and because they it's don't think that like, like white, tip.
3: straight, and male are identities because it's just
2: that yeah, like totally. base level
3: that's why they don't think they're identity politics but they are more than anyone but
2: else. that's that's mm. because they occupy the space of the norm inside politics and inside media and like yeah i mean the self-reflection is just completely absent but all of that kind of stuff like i think you need to reflect on the reality as well that like the air that you breathe, the water that you drink, the food that you eat, like the roof of your head, the cost, the access to and the quality of all of those things are determined by political decisions. And regardless of whether you choose to engage in politics, politics governs your life. And if you're not making decisions about how your life is governed, your landlord will be, your boss will be, because all those people are voting. <laughs> people who believe that you shouldn't have rights, particularly as a woman or as a marginalized person over your body uh, or over, you know, the quality of the work environments that you have access to, a whole bunch of people with quite different opinions to you are deciding to use their voice. And i just say as well that um, if you actually look at the figures, so like here in New Zealand, for example, uh, in 2017, we had, uh, for the first time, people under the age of 34 were the biggest voting demographic in the country but the majority of them were deciding to kind of not engage in politics and a substantial number decided not to vote. And if you talk to all of those people on a one-to-one basis, they'll say something akin to, oh, you know, my voice doesn't matter and my vote doesn't count. But that's, again, looking at it from a very individualistic framework. So if you feel as though your vote or your voice doesn't matter, then touch base with like 10 of your mates, because then you have 10 or 11 different votes and if you all decide to use your power in that way you can skew things you can change things especially when you consider that it proliferates outwards and that kind of comes to the core of like um, my like my, my principles, my values, my way of approaching things, is I genuinely believe that no one ever changes the world alone. But if you're not deciding to get involved in that discussion, that, discussion, that uh, movement, that uh, opportunity for change and connecting the dots with other people, then you're also completely missing the opportunity to engage in that moment and that movement for that change. So if you don't like your politics and you don't like your politicians, then... You know, you need to recognize that those politicians are there either because you voted for them or you neglected to vote for an alternative. So start local, find someone in your community who you do trust and back them in running. And I just need to say the final thing, which is that to all of the dude bros out there who think that it is like real cool and edgy to not vote because it's a protest, cool protest bro, you are literally doing the opposite of anything (laughs) that protest is supposed to achieve you are literally tapping out of any form of engagement so protest is about facilitating collective change if you want to do that then you need to have your voice at the table
3: it's like that cambridge analytica documentary that came out and how cambridge analytica encouraged all those people in trinidad all the young kids to not vote that it was a political mm. movement and it mm. turned out it was just a oh, bunch yeah. of middle-aged so white clocked. people trying to make them think it was cool and it was you just got and, away, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. Worked.
2: they don't want you to vote oh, no. that's another yeah. thing you know, like But the people who are in power, who hold all of the power and wealth right now, sure as hell don't want you to vote. They want you turned off from politics. And when you decide to switch off and disengage from politics, you give them license to continue doing shitty stuff. So decide to take that back and to hold them accountable for it by voting. And if voting doesn't feel like it's enough, God forbid campaign, do something bigger than that.
4: Oh my god! I've loved this chat so much. It's so good. You're so
2: smart. Yes. it's actually yeah. insane. <laughs> thank <laughs> you, Chloe, so much. Your brain. You're yes, all good
4: thank
3: players. you. No, nah, thank it's you. A pleasure <laughs> to
4: talk to you. Much. Love your work. Make sure you vote
2: from overseas. <laughs>
4: oh a hundred percent I've got all the calendar Wait. notifications for how many times I'm going to harass everyone on the podcast as well I'm
2: going to try to amazing. vote i be yeah. like get out of the embassy there's, there's like approximately yeah. <laughs> I'll marry you <laughs> and
4: then oh, I don't even know if you can vote then. we'll figure it out <laughs> don't worry marry yeah
2: well, way, well. Anyway. <laughs> this is the thing yeah. all right um yeah enjoy everything you guys are amazing um thank you as well for having me on I really appreciate it of course thank you Chloe bye best of luck